Shunmei Young has recently come back from Sierra Leone, where she's been working on setting up a treatment centre for Ebola, and also implementing the necessary training of staff there. She told us more about her work. So I was in Kerrytown, where Save the Children was setting up a new Ebola treatment centre. So I was there right in the middle of the set-up period and ju left just before it opened. Um, and I was there as a clinical advisor. Um, so I'm a paediatrician by training and I still work as a um, honorary consultant. And I was really keen to, I guess, put some of my skills and in, in my more clinical skills to work, really. It seemed um, like a fantastic opportunity, really. It was a huge need, and so that's what I did. And have you got any previous experience with Ebola? I mean, what made you think, I can do this? It's a really good question. Um, no, I have no um, experience with Ebola. It was one of the things I wondered about how useful I could be, given that I hadn't had any direct experience in Ebola or working in a treatment centre. And it became fairly clear that actually, you know, there is a pretty small pool of people who have had that experience. And, and it was felt that just, I guess, having some clinical skills, that that would be better than nothing, I guess. Paint me a picture of what was it like? What was the setup like when you arrived? And what did you see maybe as the most pressing needs? It's quite a long journey. Um, there's only a couple of airlines still flying. So we flew via Casablanca, of all places. Arrived in Sierra Leone, I think, in Freetown at the airport at like four o'clock in the morning, kept for a few hours. And so we started to try and work actually before we even got there in terms of trying to figure out what the training we wanted to do would be. Then it was like about a four hour journey by car to um, Kerrytown. And we arrived in Kerrytown, joined the eight, I think it was the eight people who were there already from Save the Children. So it was actually quite a small team. So we really did then have to get stuck in straight away. What was it like? What did it look like when you arrived? By the time I arrived, the um, Ministry of Defence, the UK Ministry of Defence, who are kind of overseeing the construction and the some 20 subcontractors or something that they have working for them, had been working pretty flat out. And so by the time we'd arrived, to me it still looked like a construction site, but you could actually discern that there was, um, there was a row of um, what would be the ward, so kind of blue plastic sheeting, tin roof, um, and a few um, concrete um, structures. Uh, but it still looked very much like a construction site then. They were busy trying to install the water, put the power in, put in a communication system, build the road up to it. So it was still very much work in progress. So as well as the, the physical buildings and the team you were putting together, could you already, when you first arrived, start to see the signs of the disease affecting the people? It's interesting. It was my first experience um, in Sierra Leone, so I didn't have anything to compare it to in terms of um, being able to see you know, tell whether society was somehow kind of functioning differently. The market still seemed very busy. I didn't see the images that I was familiar with from television, for example, in terms of seeing very quiet markets, people wearing gloves, washing hands before having, you know, handling money. Didn't see that. I think the most striking thing about it was the number of, was going through checkpoints. So um, even in the journey from the airport to Kerrytown, we stopped at, I think, five or six checkpoints. And often these are um, just local checkpoints, so put up by the community, where you'd have to get out the car, wash your hands um, with chlorinated or supposedly chlorinated water um, and then have your temperature taken and then pile back into the car and um, carry on. So that was the, I think, the first thing that you can think, right, OK, this is, this is not normal. 
and that started as soon as you start, arrived in the airport. Were you yourself treating any people or were there, were there people coming to you or you were just training the, the staff that were there? Because it wasn't a pre-existing hospital, they weren't, you know, it wasn't known in the community as a place for treatment, so they, there weren't kind of people turning up to the construction site before we started, well, not, for, not as patients, uh, certainly coming, turning up for jobs, interestingly. It opened last Wednesday, the 5th of November, so what do you see as the key things that you had to get across there? What, what were your, your key aims to teach people how to do? So I was tasked with developing the training programme and training the health team, so doctors and nurses. And they were made up of members of the Cuban Medical Brigade. So there were 60 doctors and nurses from the Cuban Medical Brigade and Sierra Leonean healthcare workers. 60 Cuban medical doctors and nurses and then 30 Sierra Leonean um, community health officers and community health assistants, so kind of like doctors and nurses. My feeling with the training was the priority was really focusing on their safety and that felt like a huge responsibility. So really training on the personal protective equipment, PPE, um, so how to put it, put it on and more importantly how to take it off safely because that's the kind of, that's the time that one's at highest risk. It's quite a passive process, actually. So it, the a hygienist stands on the other side of a, a, a line and sprays you down with 0.5% um, chlorine. You know, you start off by kind of getting sprayed down in the front and the back, and then you take off your apron. Uh, between every single step, you have to wash your hands, your glove, your double gloved hands, uh, gradually removing um, pieces of equipment, and each time trying to make sh make sure that you're not somehow kind of contaminating yourself. So we spent quite a lot of time trying to develop the protocol and the teaching for that. And then also one of the things I was trying to do was develop the accidental exposure drills. So in the unfortunate event that someone would have some kind of exposure, whether that be some, you know, something not so dangerous, like they notice a tear in their suit, you know, the kind of the white or yellow suit that you see people wear, without any obvious exposure, um, through to having, say, splashes of vomit or kind of spit in their eyes, through to having a needle stick injury. So if you, you know, for example, just taking blood from a patient or trying to put an intravenous line in and, and stab yourself by mistake, what should healthcare workers do in, in those circumstances? It's difficult because... Um, on the one hand, you want to try and get rid of that as quickly as possible, but there's a danger then of taking off your protective equipment while you're still the red zone, as we call it, which is you know, the area that's potentially contaminated on the ward. Um, and so stri trying, striking a balance in terms of when should you just try and get out and go into the de decontamination area as quickly as possible, and when should you try and do something immediately and trying to work out sensible protocols around that. And we see people on the news wearing these huge suits and, and treating patients and working mm. with patients. What are some of the difficulties of working under those conditions? And have you done anything to try and, and help alleviate some of those problems or, or provide advice for healthcare workers for working in those conditions? As you can imagine, it's mainly heat and sweat. It's really, really hot working in those suits in a tropical climate what's equivalent to like a, a, te a tent with a, a, a tin roof. It's quite claustrophobic because you've got all this, you know, you've got a, a mask around your mouth, you've got a hood on and you've got goggles. Um, you can't hear properly because of the hood. You know, maybe you can't make yourself heard so well. Uh, if you've got an itchy nose, you can't scratch your nose, so you're not allowed to touch, you're, you know, you're not allowed to touch your goggles, you're not allowed to oh. touch your mask. If you want to sneeze, you can't, you think the polite thing to do is bring your hand to your face, you can't do that, or you can't bury your nose in your sleeve. 
and also recognizing signs that people are getting heat illness so they're getting kind of getting dehydrated or getting too hot because what you don't want is getting getting to the stage where um, yourself or a colleague are at the point of fainting and collapse on the ward but you can imagine that can that's happen. not a good look in it's the not, Ebola clinic not, no absolutely <laughs> then how on earth do you get this person out safely they're horizontal how do you get, you know, get them to decontamination and get them out of their they're very hot suit safely. It's, you know, we were really trying to emphasise prevention. It's a lot about the kind of mental and physical preparation before you go in. So that's what we were spending some time on the training in terms of um, people not hurrying, making sure that they were prepared in terms of being calm, making sure they'd been to the loo, drinking enough water um, before and after, looking after each other. So having a buddy system is really important. And, you know, there was additional challenges because, you know, we were working through at least three languages, you know, Spanish with the Cubans, um, Creole, and, of course, English being the language that we were mainly trying to communicate with everyone in. What are some of your most striking memories from that time? I, I loved working with the people I was working with, both in terms of the other team members from Save the Children. It was a small team. Um, everyone was working flat out, trying to achieve what seemed to be this, you know, it was an enormous task. Everyone was trying to help each other out. So um, whether it was, you know, the nutrition guy helping with the shift stuff in the warehouse, me getting the security manager and the, the data manager to come and help me do some PPE training because it's quite difficult to on your own. Just everyone trying to help out while they're trying to kind of get on with their little bit of the kind of um, the, the project. Um, so the, the sense of kind of teamwork and camaraderie was quite um, memorable. And also the lovely um, Cuban and um, Sierra Leonean staff, this kind of sense of duty and... Um, responsibility um, to kind of help their fellow human being in this time of crisis. It was really inspiring. A lot of the stories we've seen on the news do highlight how contagious it is. We've heard stories of healthcare workers coming down with it, some dying from it. Is there any of a sense of fear? Certainly before I went out, you know, I was apprehensive, my, you know, my, uh, myself at the kind of the risk Although, because I knew that I was going mainly to do training and to help set up the centre um, and wasn't going to be, I was going to have minimal, if any, kind of direct um, contact with patients. I think often the risk is actually outside of the kind of that very controlled environment and it's more kind of, for example, if, you know, there was a traffic accident or um, we came across someone, you know, on the street who was ill and how, how one would deal with that. But once I was out there, it, it wasn't scary, actually. But I think it, was, it felt like a, a big responsibility of um, the healthcare workers so that they felt the right amount of confidence. And we really wanted to emphasise that we wanted to do what we could to try and keep everyone as safe as possible. I hope that we managed to instil that kind of sense of confidence, but not overconfidence, because I think as soon as you lose the fear, then it becomes dangerous. I think people have to be fearful. We've seen in recent weeks the response from the entire medical community around the world, governments, everyone stepping up, lots of uh, facilities and people coming in. Do you personally think it's going to be enough? Do you think that this can be stopped? Difficult to say. I hope so. Um, and I think certainly in the last few days there's been some... Encourage, well, I wouldn't say encouraging, but less frightening um, numbers coming out. For example, from Liberia, things look like they may have stabilised somewhat. Kerrytown, where, which is where I was, was the first of, I think, um, five or six different um, 
Ebola treatment centres that are going to be opening in the next few months. Uh, and so that will hugely um, increase the capacity in Sierra Leone and that will go, I think, a, you know, a long way to averting what could be a kind of catastrophic, um, what is already um, terrible but um, could be you know, even more catastrophic outcome. In terms of the countries themselves and we've heard that a lot of the problems have been trying to get through to people that they need to maybe behave in a different way Mm. that some of the customs that they have around uh, dealing with the dead and and interacting with people change. Do you think some of those messages seem to be starting to get through in the local communities? Yes I think so. I think it's going to have a profound effect on um, some of the kind of social norms in terms of you know how physical you are when you greet someone, for example. So people weren't shaking hands, you know, you're either touching elbows, I think what the Cubans, you know, or just putting your hand on your, your kind of heart or your kind of chest as a kind of a sign of greeting. The issue around, I think one of the, I guess, most sensitive or most difficult areas is around the management of dead, dead bodies and burials. There has been, there, there has definitely been a change in you know, behaviours around that, but I think some of those are quite difficult to shift. And now you're back in the UK, you've been mm. back for a, a week or so now. Mm. What are your feelings looking back? Uh, do, you, do you want to go back out there? Do you still feel connected to the project out there? Oh, very much so. I really missed it when I came back and I um, I feel like I was harassing them because I was emailing constantly and kind of trying to be helpful. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, I feel very connected. Um and I would love to go back. I think it probably won't be this side of um, Christmas, but maybe um, in the new year, I very much that I would be able to go back. And it would be really, really interesting to see how, how it's going once it's opened. And also just as a reality check in terms of just kind of seeing some of the things that we were planning in terms of whether it was what the, the, the equipment or the drugs or whether we were right in terms of and you know, how that could have been better. If there's one memory or one picture in your mind that that sums up your time there what would that be it'll probably be the being in the middle of a animated interactive training session with uh, with the Sierra Leonean and uh, Cuban doctors and nurses having these really animated kind of discussions about what would be the right thing to do with a whatever there is a kind of a, a mother coming with a breastfeeding baby really critical discussions about what would you do do in these life and death situations and it just felt um yeah it felt very real um, so I think that's probably, that was the kind of the, the crux of what I was doing out there. So in your role as someone who's used to dealing particularly with children, are there any special things that maybe are, are currently lacking the understanding mm. out there of how you treat and isolate children and, and how, how could you help? I think there are a lot of unknowns in terms of, in terms of dealing with children. Uh, it seems that children who get infected do a lot worse there's this tragic problem of children of infected parents. Most probably they will get, you know, get infected themselves. But if their parents get taken in and they're well, a traditional kind of society, relatives or neighbours, friends would take in those children. Um, but obviously there's a fear that those children would be infected. So they're, in, a, in certain, certain circumstances, being abandoned. And that's really difficult because it, in, from the community's point of view, it's probably the right thing because if the child is infected, taking in that child will potentially, could potentially infect a, another family. 
it was interesting being out there with Save the Children because obviously, you know, Save the Children's, you know, is is a children's charity, and um, I think they will be trying to pay particular attention to um, infected and affected children. So we had quite a lot of discussion um, about um, child safeguarding and how to um, deal with those children, so whether they're kind of surviving children or children who have, are uninfected but their parents died or are admitted, and talk of having a children's centre. I'd be very interested, both as a, as a paediatrician and as a researcher, to do much more kind of focusing um, on how we can better manage children during the crisis. It really is such a cruel disease. You know, it just gets right at the fabric, I think, of um, society. And, you know, somewhere like Sierra Leone, which is you know, just um, you know, having emerged from, you know, years of strife, it just seems so unfair, really. Are there any images of the country itself that, that actually stay with you? Within kind of half an hour of driving from the airport, I thought I would love to come back um, after this horrible thing is over. It looks like a stunning country and really lovely people. It's beautiful. It's very lush. Um, I have the colours of blue sky, orange roads and kind of green forest uh, in my mind. The coastline was, is lovely. And so, yes, I'd love to go back. I think it's a it's yeah, a beautiful place. What's the current feeling about some of the experimental treatments or vaccines that are starting to come through? And is there hope that they will reach the people that desperately need them in significant numbers? From a research point of view, I thought there was a huge amount in terms of just basic supportive management and care that we don't know that needs to be answered. So, yes, please bring on the new drugs and new vaccines. But I think actually us just learning about um, how do we better provide supportive care in terms of how much fluid, what type of fluid, how quickly, um, what kind of supportive um, treatments in terms of nutritional supplements. Should we be giving antibiotics? Should we be giving antimalarials? Um, Lots of questions like that, which I think might make um, a difference to whether patients survive or not. I guess that struck me as a big question. I'm sure and I, well, I hope that some of these new experimental vaccines and um, drugs will work. I hope that they reach the right people uh, in time. Um, but I think what we can do at the moment is try and Im improve as much as possible um, the supportive management while keeping health care workers safe. If you've got even just a few words for what we here, safe and sound in the UK, mm. can do to help, what would it be? Well, I think first I'd like to say I felt really, and I'm not someone who usually kind of, I felt very proud to kind of come from the London School. I think um, London School has been fantastic in terms of being, it takes a lot of people support, I think, and institutional support to get at the end to get a couple of individuals like myself and Catherine and Shefali, who are the other two LSHTM staff out with me, out there. So I think in terms of that kind of inst really kind of institutional backing is, was, was really helpful. Um, and um, I also thought the UK was made in a, a huge effort, I think, in Sierra Leone. Yes, absolutely money, um, obviously, um, getting people out there with the skills. And that requires a lot of logistics and coordination and cooperation and just getting on with each other, you know, that's, that's key. I think that's some, one of the things that kind of stops things happening is just people not keeping hold of the kind of big picture about we're actually all in this together and trying to do something. Just kind of focus on what we're trying to do and everyone just muck in and, you know, do it.